Thin Air Podcast is supported in part by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. Patrons get rewards for their support, things like stickers, blogs about what we're working on, and more. Once you become a donor, you'll have instant access to all of our Patreon-exclusive content. So if you want more Thin Air Podcast, check us out at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. Thanks to Audible for supporting Thin Air. For a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash thinair or text thinair to 500-500. Previously on Thin Air Podcast. Darwin Vest was last seen leaving the Crown Bar in downtown Idaho Falls alone sometime around 12.30 a.m. on June 3rd, 1999. Well, I initially thought that Lee was responsible for Darwin's uh, uh, disappearance and death because he behaved very suspiciously. He took off to Salt Lake the next day and he was very uncooperative. They had a running down. I I felt Lee was uh, the culprit. My theory is, when you hear the rest of the story, that he did escape that night, absolutely 100%. Don Ellingford escaped on the night of 6-3-1999, early morning hours, and he went undetected for we don't know how long. He ended up back at the work facility that morning. Um, We absolutely believe it 100%. In contrast, the detectives in Darwin's case, and there's been a few over the years, wrapped up all of their reports and notes on Darwin's case with the following, quote, There is no evidence of foul play, and it is likely that Darwin Vest drowned in the Snake River the night he disappeared. It's the evening of June 3rd, 1999. Darwin Vest has been missing for less than 24 hours, and inmates at the Idaho Falls Community Work Center are checking in with guards for the night, as they are required to by the program. At 10.45 p.m., a man named Edward Sangston is where he's supposed to be, checked in with guards and, as far as they know, ready to settle in. Sangston had been in prison for grand theft since 1997, and he was likely at the work center because he was up for parole. The work camp's aim is to help, quote, selected inmates who are nearing release a chance to prepare themselves for release. So, in other words, the goal is to help inmates to transition back into society by giving them jobs in the community during working hours while they're still incarcerated and under supervision at night. So it's kind of like a halfway house for inmates who are getting ready to get out. But at 2 a.m., the time of the next regularly scheduled check, this would have now been June 4th, 1999, Sangston was nowhere to be found. He had likely escaped through a bedroom window. As it was a low security facility, the windows were not equipped with alarms. Police later found a quote, screen that was torn and pushed away from its frame. Annie, 
Darwin's family member, who we spoke to in our last episode, talked with us about Sangston's escape. In the report, his escape report, it states that Ed Sangston escaped through a bedroom window, and this bedroom window's screen had been torn off and pushed away. There were footprints up and over the fence, this bedroom window, which those words mean something to me because it wasn't his bedroom window. It was a window somewhere within that facility where the screen had been torn off and an escape had happened. Though Sangston was found to be missing at 2 a.m., officers at the facility did not call police dispatch until 3.49 a.m., nearly two hours after he is found to be missing. That means that Sangston could have had, potentially, a four-hour head start before Idaho Falls police even knew he was gone. Sangston would eventually be found in Florida in 2001 and would return to Idaho to do time for the escape. At this same facility was a man named Don Ellingford who attacked Darwin in 1996 and who he ultimately testified against. I couldn't find out how long Ellingford had been at this facility before Darwin went missing, but Darwin's family had believed that he was incarcerated elsewhere in a maximum security penitentiary. Apparently he'd been on quite good behavior while he was in jail, but he nearly killed Darwin. He meant to. My name is Rebecca Vest, and uh, I'm, wow, (laughs) I'm Darwin's little sister. Rebecca was in court the day that Ellingford was sentenced. They had just sentenced him, and he got up to walk out, and um, and he looked over at our family. My whole family was there. We were all there. And and he he said he said something about payback or like I'll 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 pay you back for this or I'll get get you back for this. Just. Unbelievable. Did they ever tell you that he or your family that he had been moved to this facility? Oh, no. Oh, no. When we found out that somebody, possibly him, had been wandering around and was on a work release, and I don't think they knew who was in or out of, of that work release thing. Now, there, there's another joke for you. Wow. You think you're being protected, and and you're not. So when Sangston escaped, less than 24 hours after Darwin went missing, from the same facility where Ellingford was incarcerated, Darwin's family and friends began to believe that it was possible that Ellingford could have snuck out that night, gone unnoticed during the hours of Darwin's disappearance, and wound up back at the facility the following morning, with guards having no idea he was ever gone, giving him a solid alibi. There was another force at work the night Darwin went missing, and that is the Snake River. The Snake River is arguably the most important river in Idaho. From its source in the Rocky Mountains in Wyoming to its mouth at the Columbia River in Washington, 
A majority of its 1,078 miles stretch directly through Idaho, running through the southern portion of the state from border to border until it veers north towards Washington. The river is a major fixture of many southern Idaho towns, including Idaho Falls. The river doesn't quite bisect the town, but it comes close. The town itself was named after rapids in the river, which later became a diversion dam now known as the Falls. The Falls are 1,200 feet long and have a 20-foot drop, and they're near the center of the town. If you were to get a postcard from Idaho Falls, it's likely to be of the Falls, framed by a large white spire from the nearby Mormon temple in the background. In the early morning hours of June 3, 1999, around 12.30 to 12.45 a.m., Darwin Vest left the Golden Crown in downtown Idaho Falls, never to be seen again. As we discussed in our last episode, it was thought that he would have walked home, which would have taken around 25 to 30 minutes. It was raining that night and past weather records note that between 12.01 a.m. and 12.53 a.m., it was lightly raining and windy. The Snake River was at a yearly high that night. As was later reported in some of the detective's notes, quote, the Snake River was having a high water runoff from melting snow. The normal volume of water going through Idaho Falls is 6,000 CFS, or cubic feet per second. The volume of water on 6299 was at 27,500 CFS. The diversion dams were open at all of the power plants downstream from Idaho Falls. End quote. So, did Darwin, by accident, fall into the Roaring Snake River that night? Or did someone, Don Ellingford or Lee Curtis or someone else, find Darwin after he left the Golden Crown and kill him, his body never to be found. Today we present the evidence that exists for each of these possibilities, as told to us by members of his family, his friend Eric Seneff, and from detectives' notes that have since been made public. Join us for part two of the Darwin Vest story. So I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about your family in general. So can you kind of just describe your family for us? I was born and raised in Idaho Falls. Darwin and David are both older brothers. You know, my parents are both native from the area as well. We're very, very close, very close, tight-knit family. We were very close, I mean, even into our... 30s and 40s and 50s, we all remain close. Darwin was about seven years older than me. He actually had a snake house, what we called the snake house, out on Snow Road in Idaho Falls when he was probably in his 20s. I helped him take care of his all of his reptiles and amphibians. It was like living in a <laughs> a menagerie <laughs> in our house. My mom was terrified of snakes. I don't know how she ever survived. My dad's, I became Darwin's 
geeky little sister following him around and in awe of, of his endeavors and research. Rebecca and Darwin were close throughout their lives. Rebecca described how both of them shared a passion for science and research, and Rebecca and Darwin actually worked together at Washington State University. And they asked me to be on staff there in the Venom and Toxin lab there at Washington State University. I worked with him and a Dr. Kenneth Cardone and the staff there in the zoology department with Darwin. My gosh, for several years working on, you know, projects from snake venom to the hobo spider and beyond. We did a lot of different research. So I was very, very close, very close to Darwin. He he and I spent many amazing hours all night long in the lab, you know, milking snakes, processing venom freeze-drying of venom. We had a lot of time to share a lot of things and talk, and we actually really got to know each other very well. He was very, very inquisitive, and he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He was shy as well. You know, he never really... I mean, he could have really got out there and sold himself. He was pretty shy and reserved about it, actually. In the same way in his personal life, you know, he wasn't incredibly social until he got in his 20s, I would say, and went up to Moscow, Idaho. And, um, you know, he had more of a social scene there. And although he was social in Idaho Falls, too, he had a girlfriend for many years. They almost got married, and then it got called off. And I'd say he had a pretty normal, normal life for a, an amazing, brilliant. <laughs> and he, he was a sweetheart. He really was. He was a sweet person. He had a sweet soul. And I miss him. Rebecca also explained why Darwin left his studies at Washington State early and without a degree. When he went back to Idaho Falls, my my dad was getting cancer treatment, so so they needed help. Mom and dad needed help, and um, and then he passed away, and Darwin had intended on actually you know, going somewhere and getting back into his research, probably with the university or maybe biotech. He moved his office down into my parents' basement. You know, not everybody would drop their career to go down and help their parents like Darwin did. So he was doing very well and things were looking up. you know, our family was still mourning losing our dad. Plus, Darwin loved summertime. He mumbled and grumbled through the winter, but boy, oh boy. He, he loved being outside, and he loved the sun, and he loved, you know, going out and eyeing snakes and spiders and loved the outdoors. He 
he was a real nature person. He loved hiking. and So he was in a really good way when he disappeared. I mean, we were all still kind of reeling from Dad's loss. But, but summertime was here. We, things were looking pretty darn bright. Rebecca was living in Seattle when she found out that Darwin was missing. And when she did, she was immediately concerned and suspected that something was gravely wrong. It was early in the morning. I was at work at a, a research site that I was working at, and um, my desk phone rang, and it was my mom. And I knew something was wrong because she would never, never call me at work. You know, that was like a no-no. When I picked up the phone, I could tell by her voice that something was wrong, and she said, uh, Darwin isn't in his room. He's not in his bed this morning. He didn't come up for breakfast. And right then, I knew that something was terribly wrong because that was completely unlike Darwin. We were very concerned and knew something really bad had happened, and I said, Mom, we've got to call the police. They were so casual about it. They, you know, I thought, boy, they'll get right on it and start looking for Darwin. They they basically just dismissed it. It wasn't long before Rebecca was on a plane to Idaho Falls to help look for Darwin. My family, my relatives, my mom and I, around the clock, we went all over Idaho Falls, looked in abandoned cars, looked in, maybe he, you know, passed out somewhere, maybe he was sick, maybe he was in a stairwell. I looked in every dumpster. Everything, it just wasn't right, it didn't click. There was definitely something wrong with the scenario. For Rebecca, Darwin's disappearance has always been centered around the likelihood of foul play. She believes that Lee Curtis was definitely involved, Lee being the last person to have seen Darwin that night. We discussed Lee's story and what he said happened the night Darwin went missing in our last episode, but Rebecca noticed firsthand that Darwin was occasionally wary of Lee, who seemed somewhat unpredictable. When... Ever I was in Idaho Falls, we'd always go out to gather all the kids, Darwin, David, and I, and, you know, when we were all together. And we'd be literally driving in the car. Uh, we'd go up, say, to have dinner somewhere at a restaurant in Idaho Falls. And he'd see Lee walking in the door, and, man, that was it. We were not going. He, was, he would literally duck down in the car to hide from Lee. Just keep driving, keep driving. He threatened a couple of people. He would like hit on women in the bar and pretend like he accidentally burned them with cigarettes. He actually even said to him, you know, stay away from me. I, I don't know if I can control myself. I, I'm going, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill somebody and it might be you. So naturally, <laughs> that's right where I zeroed in. I didn't even think about really the other, you know, possibilities. 
When Rebecca was in Idaho Falls after Darwin's disappearance, she tried to talk to Lee's family since he had left town, but she didn't have the best of luck. I went right to Lee's. I picked up the phone, called Lee's house, Lee's parents' house. They they were very angry with me and you know told me Lee's Lee's out at our family farm. He's here, but he's not here. He's he's out at our farm, and I, I didn't know what that meant. I don't know where their farm is or anything, but I mean, all these things went through my mind, and, and mom and I were just trying to figure everything out, and, and my mom frantically tried to find out what this farm was. She asked friends and relatives, and I mean, they were going to drive her out to this farm, wherever it was. Uh, it was north of town, I think, somewhere. I could be wrong. But she was just sure that Darwin was beat up or being held out there by Lee or they were trying to hide him. Or I think his family was fully aware of his state of mind. And naturally, you know, you try to cover that up with a loved one. But, wow, I got hung up on. My mom and I went over you know, we begged them, please tell us anything. You know, can Lee talk to us? Can you, what time did Lee come home? And they're like, don't, don't call us again. And we've already talked to the police. That just blew Lee into the category of, there's really something wrong here and it has to do with him. I don't know where this farm is. Rebecca was the only place that I heard about this. It's not in detective's notes, and Annie, Darwin's other family member, didn't mention it. Rebecca also mentioned that she heard Lee left in the middle of the night, shortly after Darwin's disappearance, but there's no mention of a specific time in police files. I did reach out to police regarding clarification of this detail, but I have not heard back yet. For me, the question of Lee's involvement comes back to the idea of means, motive, and opportunity. Both Rebecca and Annie expressed that Lee was somewhat unstable, and that Darwin and Lee's relationship wasn't the closest or friendliest. As we discussed in our last episode, there are some confusing moments with Lee's timeline that night and his cab ride home. Lee did leave the Golden Crown before Darwin did, and both men were gone around the same time before Lee returned to the Golden Crown alone. According to bartenders, this is not a long amount of time, around 10 or 15 minutes at the most, but in theory, there is a short window of time where both Lee and Darwin are not in the bar, and it is unknown where either of them are. So we might have the means, and the opportunity, but what I keep coming back to is motive for Lee. Sure, he might have been unstable, but that doesn't mean that he wanted to kill Darwin. No one that night reports of any fighting between them, so perhaps something happened when Lee left and Darwin followed that we will never know about, 
maybe something else had happened between them that caused Lee to want to hurt Darwin, but if that reason is out there, it was never revealed to police in interviews. Also, according to Lee's family, Lee is home by 1am, which is at most 30 minutes after Darwin left the bar, and at the shortest estimate, only 15 minutes after Darwin left. So there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of time to commit any crime, but there is a small window there. And perhaps, as Rebecca suggests, his family covered for him that night, saying he was home earlier than he actually was. It is also noted in police records that Lee was given a polygraph in September of 2000, which he passed, indicating that he was truthful about not having anything to do with Darwin's disappearance. But Annie believes that Lee may not have had his own motive, but rather helped to hurt Darwin out of his relationship to Don Ellingford. Annie believes that Lee set Darwin up to later be murdered by Ellingford that night. I think he left out the north entrance of the Golden Crown, which went to the alley. He was attacked right then and there. Um, He was set up by Lee Curtis uh, for the people who were waiting for him in the alley. And he was attacked, thrown in the dumpster. They waited for a car. Maybe Lee Curtis went and got his car took him to the home at 879 Clareview, where the standoff occurred the next night, and they murdered him in there, in that basement of that house. In researching Darwin's case, Annie came across a series of events that happened in the days following Darwin's disappearance, and for her, none of these are coincidental. The first was, of course, the Sangston escape on the night after, the evening of June 3rd and the early morning hours of June 4th. And then on the night of June 4th, around 10 p.m., an armed standoff between a homeowner and police, later with a SWAT team called in, took place at 879 Clareview, the address Annie mentioned. That house belonged to a man named Mike Ellingford, Don Ellingford's nephew. And not coincidentally, according to Annie... Lee Curtis lives right behind the other suspect who's related to Don Ellingford. He lives right behind their backyard back up to each other to a man named Mike Ellingford. When Lee was in Idaho Falls, he usually stayed with his parents, who lived on a street called Summit Circle. The Curtis family home and Mike Ellingford's home don't quite line up back to back, but they are close. While I couldn't find any police records that indicated this, Annie asserts that the Ellingfords were friends with Lee, and that a plan had been hatched by Don Ellingford to kill Darwin that night that Lee was somehow involved in, as Annie described. The standoff at Mike's residence two days later was a big deal in Idaho Falls. It made the front page of the newspaper, the Post Register, for days. But what actually happened during the standoff is somewhat unclear, even from detailed police reports. It seems that Mike had been drinking that day, and he began to smash out the windows of his house with a shovel and started breaking other things inside. When officers arrived, they believed that they had heard gunshots inside, and so that's when they called in the SWAT team. The SWAT team then tried talking to Mike to get him out of the house. No shots were fired during this time, and 
though it took hours, Mike eventually surrendered and was arrested on several warrants. He admitted to drinking and said that he did it because he was angry with the police. No one else was found inside his house. What they did find inside were guns, five of them, and the house itself was a disaster. Someone, presumably Mike Ellingford, had dug a hole into the foundation, which was six feet deep, and had begun to dig tunnels underneath the foundation of what had been the garage. Out back, in and around the garage and the house, there was a four by three by six foot deep hole dug in the backyard all along the foundation. There was a tunnel that had been started to be dug from the house to the garage. The garage foundation had been taken out and was exposed or or the dirt all along there. So there were tunnels in between the walls of the house. Compartments, I meant, not at this On the same day that the article about the standoff, it was Darwin missing. The names of the suspects are related. Don and Mike Ellingford, and nobody, like the media, never put it together. Annie began to connect the standoff, not only because of its proximity to the date of Darwin's disappearance, but from a series of tips which came in years later. Jump forward to tips that came in in 2008 and 2011, and actually one in 2000. So three people came forward saying that Ellingford were involved in the murder. There were three tips which were noted in the police records, and three tips which Annie discussed at length. The first tip, chronologically, came in October of 2000 from a criminal informant who is unidentified in police notes. The note reads, quote, The CI said he had been involved in multiple conversations with Don Ellingford and William Derrick Emery, in which they indicated that they were involved in the murder of Darwin Vest. Derrick Emery said that he kidnapped and killed Darwin for Don Ellingford. Ellingford was supposed to have been present at the time the murder occurred. Ellingford told the CI nobody would find a body in the Wolverine area, meaning that the animals would eat it. Don also made a strange comment to the CI at one time about he could kill someone and put them behind a concrete wall in a basement. Ellingford told the CI that Darwin had stolen some phosphorus from him and he was sent to prison because of Darwin. Ellingford had a ring with diamonds in the shape of a spider that he claimed to have cut off Darwin's finger, end quote. It does not seem that detectives gave much weight to the CI's information, as it was discovered that Emery, the man who supposedly helped Ellingford, was in a different work camp in a different part of Idaho on the night of his disappearance. The sergeant at this facility was adamant. It was, quote, not possible for Derek Emery to be in Idaho Falls when Darwin disappeared, end quote. They also contacted Eric based on this tip, Eric being Darwin's friend who we spoke to in our last episode. Eric does not remember Darwin as wearing any rings, and that he knew of no other connection between Darwin and Don other than the assault in 1996. So it seems that police do not take the information from this CI seriously. The next tip came all the way in 2008, and again implicated Don Ellingford. This time, it was an ex-girlfriend of Mike Ellingford's, and again, Darwin's jewelry was brought up. 
So this was in September of 2008. She was Michael Ellingford's girlfriend. And Mike Ellingford is the one with the standoff that was shooting out his window and had holes and compartments and pieces of his yard dug up. Information that she provided included the existence of a ring and a necklace. About seven months ago, Mike told her that he and Don Ellingford killed Darwin Vest in the basement of Michael Ellingford's house, 879 Clareview. Mike cut off Darwin's limbs with an axe and a knife and put the body parts in a cooler filled with concrete. Threw the cooler in the Snake River about 10 miles north of town. Leah advised that Mike took Darwin's gold necklace and Don took Darwin's fire ring. But again, the police do not believe this tip to be credible either. To quote from the police report, information she provided included the existence of a ring and a necklace. There is no ring or necklace in the initial investigation. Darwin's family was contacted, and they advised that Darwin does not wear necklaces or rings. I interviewed her and gave her fictitious descriptions of these pieces. She told me these were the ones. Her information is false, and no further action was taken. End quote. Basically, they discredited this girl because she described the jewelry inefficiently, which, according to family, Darwin didn't have a ring and a necklace. But I do suspect that he had some jewelry. So they just said she is not, she lied, and so she's, oh, and she also wanted them to not release Mike from jail. So I do recognize these, you know, discrepancies in these tips, but I do also feel like they're very valid. This tip seems to be the basis of what Annie imagined happened to Darwin that night. That Lee Curtis assisted in somehow getting Darwin to Mike Ellingford's basement, where the men attacked him and later dismembered and disposed of his body. The standoff two nights later demonstrates to Annie that Mike is unstable and dangerous, and that the condition of his house and the layout of it proves that it's where the murder took place. Police did interview Mike Ellingford about Darwin's disappearance while he was sitting in jail for the standoff on June 9, 1999. The report states, quote, Mike said he was familiar with Mr. Vest and was aware of the case that his uncle Don was sent to prison for. Mike said Don Ellingford was in jail at the time and he had never heard talk of revenge. Mike doubted Don would be involved in causing the disappearance of Darwin Vest. Mike said he didn't know Mr. Vest personally and had nothing to do with his disappearance. Mike denied knowing Lee Curtis, end quote. I was actually able to get a hold of Mike, and I asked him about the connection to this case. While he declined an interview, he said, quote, I'm not really sure why my name comes up in the best thing. It was my uncle who all the suspicion was about. Someone said that I had buried him in my backyard and the police dug it up. That's how I have any link to the situation. Like I said, people get me and Dawn mixed up all the time. I don't know what else I could tell you about it, end quote. This is the only tip that links Mike directly to Darwin's disappearance, but there were others that did implicate his uncle, Don. 
It's clear that Darwin's disappearance was making people talk in Idaho Falls. They were coming out of the woodwork. Darwin's friend Eric actually described another incident where a woman, and I'm not sure who this is, told him that Ellingford was responsible. In fact, we had a we had a, you know, a woman come into our store. I have a retail store here in, in Idle Falls, uh, you know, a specialty store. And uh, this gal came in one time. I don't know. I mean, she was obviously somebody who was, you know, looked like a, you know, an addict or something. But that uh, she had told my wife, you know, that uh, that she, you know, she knew the Ellingfords personally, and that uh, that somebody, their clan or whatever, had she had knowledge that they had taken Darwin out to Kepp's Crossing and then killed him and, and buried him out there somewhere. Where did where did she say she had taken him? What was the name of that place? Kepp's Crossing. It's a it's a it's a road that it's a road out in the south of town here, a gravel road that crosses a, a creek called Willow Creek, and it's called Kepp's Crossing. It's about it's about um, I don't know fifteen twenty miles from Idle Falls. Of course, we we reported this to the detective, you know, and uh, anyway, they said that of course this this person was not credible, you know. So, but yeah, you know, I was naturally thinking, you know, specifically after I heard that story, you know, with that gal. You know, because Darwin, Darwin didn't really have enemies. I think Allingford would be his only maybe enemy, you know. I mean, Darwin, you know, was, you know, he didn't make enemies. Yeah, fuck it. I mean, why would anybody, why would anybody dislike Darwin? You know? I couldn't find a record of this tip anywhere in the notes. But as Eric describes, it does seem that police dismissed it rather quickly. The final tip in the police records comes from 2011. A man named Travis Sneed claimed to have knowledge about Darwin's disappearance and reached out to Idaho Falls detectives via a letter. Travis Sneed. First name is really Justin. He goes by Travis Sneed. He was involved in some criminal activity in northern Idaho where he got involved in like a Ponzi scheme and, and he, he and another man stole a bunch of money from a woman in Coeur um, that was his crime. So he was trying to offer information to get a lesser sentence for those crimes in Coeur d'Alene. And the way he did that was he contacted the Idaho Falls Police Department and told them that he had been somewhere and he had a receipt to prove where he'd been, that where a suspect or a person had confided in him to the murder and disposal of Darwin K. Vest's body. After some brief research on this guy, it seems that, again, little weight was given to his information, likely because of Travis's reputation as a con artist and fraud. But regardless of how valid these tips may or may not be, Annie explained that they all have significance because they all now only exist in police reports because the actual audio and video that existed from the interviews of these tips have since been destroyed. And in November of 2011, an officer named Jeremy Galbraith ordered the destruction of the audio and video tapes from both tips that came in. I called the city attorney last Friday and asked him about it, and I called him again, and he said he has evidence, the person in charge of evidence looking into why they were destroyed, and I haven't heard that as to why this evidence was destroyed. So, after reviewing the tips, we are still left with little to assert in the way of concrete evidence for foul play. 
Don Ellingford was, of course, interviewed by police shortly after Darwin's disappearance. The first thing investigators did was try to establish where he was when Darwin went missing. Detectives were given paperwork indicating that Ellingford was seen at the facility at 9.45 p.m. on the night of June 2nd, and again at 2.35 in the morning of June 3rd. When asked about the escape, the lieutenant working that night said that he, quote, didn't think there was a connection between Sangston and Ellingford, end quote, Sangston being the man who escaped. The lieutenant also added that, quote, the windows at the center have bolted screens on them. The screens are not alarmed, but damage results if they are removed or tampered. No damage was detected, end quote. So this must mean, or seems to mean, that the screens at the facility are checked daily for damage, which they would have to be because Sangston, who went missing the next night, broke a screen in trying to escape from the facility. But the notes do not reflect this directly. So we have to assume that what he means is the screens at this facility were checked between the night of June 3rd and when Sangston escaped on the morning of June 4th. There's no note in the records about a check between this time frame, but this would seem to be what the notes are implying. Don himself wasn't formally interviewed by police until July 26, 1999. The report reads, quote, Don said he didn't know anything about Darwin's disappearance and couldn't help me. Don denied killing Darwin or having Darwin killed. Don denied knowing where Darwin is. Don said that he only met Darwin once, and that was the night he robbed him, end quote. The report then notes that Don agreed to a polygraph, but this never shows up in the records, and soon, he's no longer in Idaho Falls. They were, it said they were going to polygraph him, and they never did. Something happened between June and September, and when a co- an officer went back to the work center to interview Dawn again about the disappearance and I don't know maybe set up the polygraph they were they said they were going to do it stated that personnel told Kim that Dawn had recently been sent back to the state penitentiary in Boise but I have no record of why we'll be right back Audiobooks are great for helping you to be a better you. For our audience, Audible is offering a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. Just go to audible.com slash thinair or text thinair to 500-500 and browse their unmatched selection of audio content. You can download a title free and start listening. It's just that easy. Audible selection of audiobooks, original shows, news, comedy, and more is unmatched anywhere. You will find what you're looking for. And what I'm usually looking for is narrative nonfiction, which probably doesn't surprise you. I've been listening to Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI by David Grant. This audiobook chronicles one of the most shocking series of murders in our nation's history, and I had never heard of them before. For example, did you know that in the 1920s, the richest people in the world per capita were the members of the Osage Indian Nation in Oklahoma? 
Okay, neither did I. And did you know that someone began murdering all of them, leading to a crisis that helped to form the FBI? Again, I had no idea. It left me heartbroken and angry, and you simply must give it a listen. It is so beautifully told on Audible. You won't want to miss it. And if that doesn't sound like something you'll love, Audible has a wide selection of books for true crime lovers that you can just dive right into, including the new book about the Golden State Killer, I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Ugh, dying to listen to that one. And the new and best-selling The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn, and much, much more. In addition to a great selection, Audible has so many features that I know you'll love. My favorite feature is that Audible members get a credit every single month that is good for any audiobook. And if you have any unused credits, they just roll over to the next month. And if you didn't like the audiobook you chose, you can exchange it, no questions asked. Audible makes it so easy for you to listen to amazing audiobooks that I know you'll love. The books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. They're that good. So if you want to try Audible and get a free audiobook with a 30-day free trial, go to audible.com slash thin air or text thin air to 500-500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash thin air or text thin air to 500-500. And he always liked to walk. Do you, it was raining the night that he went missing. Do you think that that would have deterred him in any way or would he just have been like, I'm just going to go home? That's really something I've mulled over in my mind a lot. Darwin was like a cat. He hated being wet. He hated being cold. He actually had a cold that week. He was all stuffy and had a head cold and he didn't feel really great. I mean, normally if it were a nice warm summer night, he he may have walked down by the river. He had a... <laughs> He had some black widow spiders down there that, you know, had had a, there were like a bunch of babies and they were in the lava rocks down there. And he was, he was uh, keeping data on them and how they were doing. And gosh, when I was down there, we had our little spider route who was having babies. <laughs> what spiders were still there? It's part of who we are. But so the only reason I can think of Darwin to even go near the river would be for the Black Widows, which would have been close to the river. In the rock wall there by that, there's a little memorial. I think it's a veteran's memorial, but he wouldn't have done that on a rainy, windy, cold night. Without a flashlight and his, you know, his data, little data book. There, there was no reason, really. He would have he would have found himself in a position where he actually had to walk home. He would have bundled up his coat and gone the direct route. It's not clear from police records if the river theory was the first they investigated. It seems that they did start by chasing down human leads first in Darwin's case. It wasn't until after they interviewed Lee Curtis that the idea that Darwin fell in the river really began to take shape in the notes. 
After Lee suggested that he and Darwin used to travel by a particular canal, investigators worked with parks and recreation in Idaho Falls to search two drainage tubes which led to the river. Nothing was found. Another clue came in the form of a sighting at 4 p.m. on the day Darwin went missing, June 3, 1999. A woman named Dolores Sorensen was driving along the Shelley Bridge in Shelley, Idaho, when she saw something floating in the river. A woman in Shelley, Idaho, which is about 10 miles south of Idaho Falls, reported a body floating in the river. She knows it was a body. She clearly describes it, the black matted hair. She could see the forehead and it was bobbing up and down. She could see what it was wearing. And she tried to stop, but a car was behind her. She went home and called the police. Dolores, later speaking to Rebecca, told her that she was so sure it was a body because of something awful that had happened to her. And she said, I know it was a body. And the reason I know is because my husband found like 10 years ago, and it took him three weeks to find him. And when I saw that body, I thought, I will not let a family go three weeks without knowing where their loved one is. I'm sorry. Police reports claim that the Bingham County Sheriff's Office did search the river both June 3rd and 4th, and only found a 55-gallon drum, which they argued could have been what she saw. But Dolores was insistent. It was a body, face down, with black matted hair, and wearing a brown plaid jacket. I saw a body, not a barrel, she said. Along with Dolores' sighting of a body just downstream from Idaho Falls, there was another sighting later reported to police. But this time, it was a police officer who saw something suspicious around the time Darwin went missing. The note from the police report reads, quote, In the summer of 2000, I was contacted by Officer Lynn Case. He said that during the early morning hours of 6-3-99, he observed a male subject lying in the grass at the edge of the river. The subject appeared to be a transient and was very intoxicated. Officer Case had the subject move farther up the bank, away from the river. Officer Case had recently seen a picture of Darwin Best in the newspaper and thought that the transient by the river looked similar. He couldn't remember any more details. End quote. What I heard about it was literally several years later, I was there again, sitting at work in Seattle. I got a phone call and somebody said, do you know that there apparently was a police officer went to the river at two or three in the morning. My impression was it was still, you know, in the early a.m., you know, sometime between two and daylight, and approached someone on the riverbank, a male that sounded like Darwin, um, the way they described him. And and said, you know, what are you doing here? And and apparently he was deemed to be intoxicated. And he was laying there. He wasn't up and about. He was just laying there. Sounded like he was somewhat delirious and wasn't really 
functional or able to talk much from what I could tell. And they just said, well, you know, he was a transient down by the river and left him. Any, they should have taken anybody in that was laying on the riverbank at night. They could have at least taken him to jail for anything, public drunkenness, sleeping by the river, whatever there. But it would have saved his life. When I found that out, I just went berserk. I'm like, you're you're kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Really, they, you know, that, that, I'm sure that was Darwin. In my mind, he had either been, he had either been stabbed or, or drugged, or maybe he had gotten very drunk with Lee. That is maddening, and that, is heartbreaking and that that's gut-wrenching to think that the negligence and the inhumane treatment of whoever that person was probably my brother darwin that could have saved his life he'd be here today and they're real they never told the family about it But later police reports contradict the earlier note and change the timeline of the sighting from the early morning hours of 6-3-99 when Darwin disappeared to 10 p.m. the following evening. The later record reads, quote, The event register at police dispatch was checked, and this event occurred on 6-3-99 at 11-15 p.m., 22 hours after Darwin was last seen at the Crown Bar, end quote. Police seem to later conclude that this man was not Darwin, as their records confirm that this didn't happen in the early morning hours when Darwin went missing, but later, that same night. The event register notes on 6399 at 11.15pm read, Unknown man down. Will request ambulance if needed. Ambulance not needed. Male subject leaving. This event could be what Officer Case was remembering about finding an intoxicated man by the river. So who was this man by the river? And when did the officer actually see him? Though these event notes seem to indicate that the man was on the riverbank the following evening, this could be for something else the officer witnessed. The notes do not indicate that this happened close to the riverbank. These questions do not currently have answers that are known to the public. In looking through police records, It seems that the strongest piece of evidence claimed by previous detectives was the volume of water flowing through the river and the fact that nearby diversion dams were open. Their notes read, quote, with the volume of water at 27,500 cubic feet per second, they would have had their diversion dam gates open to avoid flooding by keeping the water going downstream. The gates at all diversion dams lift up and the water rushes through out the bottom. I talked with Bonneville County Detective Sid Poole. He knows of five people who have drowned in the Snake River, and their bodies have never been found, even when it was known where they fell in." 
I tried to reach out to current investigators on Darwin's case, and I'm still waiting to hear back from them, but a detective who later worked on Darwin's case ended his summary by writing, quote, It is very unlikely Lee Curtis had anything to do with the disappearance of Darwin Vest. Don Ellingford was secured in his room at the Idaho Falls Work Center and was not likely involved in Darwin's disappearance. From the information I have obtained, I believe that the intoxicated Darwin Vest probably fell into the Snake River and drowned. With the high volume of water going down the river at the time and the diversion gates were open, his body was probably swept downstream. Had this occurred at another time in the year, his body would not have passed through the diversion dam. But for both Rebecca and Annie, this conclusion is an irresponsible one, and it makes them doubt the entire investigation. We had to find everything out through, I believe that my brother David found out quite a bit. He was in there all the time looking at the records, and he did that for years. I mean, David and Mom and I started our vigilant search the day he disappeared and and we kept at it up until mom passed away and we just had to back off a little bit and take some deep breaths and look look up at the sky and see if it was still blue it really it changes changes who you are and and I, I really got so so angry that this could happen to Darwin and we could just get kind of blown off by the powers that be as in the police department and the detectives. I'm not saying that not that all of the detectives didn't care what um, I, I can't think of the one detective's name. He's really nice and polite, but <laughs> nice and polite doesn't do your job. Rebecca argued that police were less than forthcoming with her family, and she feels like they do have something to hide. Over the years, I've come to believe that that some of that was going on. You know, very, very defensive. Um, you know, when I go to Idaho Falls, I make a point of meeting with the detectives and they wouldn't be in and I'm determined to talk to them and get updates. They'll they never do it on their own. Our our families had to beg them for even the simplest things. It should be very straightforward and I understand I'm not gonna share everything with the family, but they muffed up so many times they either you know, which was it? Did they did they mess up or did they cover up? I mean, mistakes are forgivable, but cover-ups aren't. Annie suspects not only foul play in Darwin's disappearance, but believes that the police were involved in a cover-up, destroying evidence in order to protect people in this case, citing the tips that were later lost and the continued assertion that Darwin just fell into the river. Because we knew what happened to him in 96, and we know, I mean, think of someone in your life that would never disappear, and you just know that person would not ever just disappear. 
and nor did he fall in the river because that did not happen. It's a really easy out for the police. So, these are the pieces of evidence for the two strongest theories in Darwin's disappearance, as presented by police records, Darwin's family and friend Eric Seneff, from people in the town talking to police, to sightings which may or may not be connected, and we're left with, still, the question of what really happened to Darwin that night. As I attempt to conclude my story, I'm reminded again of Darwin's work with the hobo spider and his famous study which worked to understand the hobo spider bite. Rebecca and Darwin worked together on this research, and as she described their investigation and what they found, I couldn't help but think of my own research into Darwin's disappearance and the nature of any investigation which seeks to find the truth. So can you kind of just describe what you guys did like how did you how did you get these hobo spiders to bite the rabbits and what you found first of all we prepped the rabbits and i want to tell you it was research and i was really involved in rabbit subject protection then so we took good care of our babies i mean they did lend a lot to science so i want to make sure people don't think we tortured animals or anything because we didn't we actually would prep, you know, a little spot on the rabbit, usually back around the tip area, I believe. It's hip or it's side. We'd do a little shave and use a little nair so it would be kind of like bare skin. And then um, we'd actually hold the spider right onto the, just as if we were milking it. And um, the spiders would do a defensive bite onto the onto the rabbit, and then um, then we did have some some necrosis, as I recall. It was never dyed in the wall about the hobo spiders, which a lot of people mistakenly say that 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 wasn't the main research that actually determined anything. You know, we laid a foundation for people to work on. They've never been able to recreate that. We, we never, never actually got there. I mean, it was, it was still in the possible. Well, it's possible. It was like any other research. It's got to start somewhere to figure it out. But the thing is with with research, with any research, you don't go into it saying, this is what's happening and I'm going to prove it. You go into it and say, what's happening here? <laughs> so. Darwin Vest went missing in the early morning hours of June 3rd, 1999. He was last seen leaving a bar called the Golden Crown, and it was likely he was headed home for the night. He was 48 years old, 5 foot 9, and weighed around 160 pounds. He was not known to wear jewelry except for a spider watch and a brass belt buckle with the spider on it. If you have any information, please contact the Idaho Falls Police Department. Contact information is on our website. 
Darwin's case has a lot of moving parts and people involved, and I'm still waiting to talk to people in this case. So I will share more information as it becomes available. Thank you to Rebecca Vest and Darwin's other family member, Annie, and Eric Seneff for speaking with us. I would also like to say a huge thank you to Annie, who provided all of the police records, which were a large amount of the information we used in our episodes. So a huge thank you to her and the incredible work she has done on this case. Thin Air Podcast is produced by me and Daniel Calderon. Music in today's podcast was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at sessions.blue. Thin Air Podcast is supported in part by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. One of the rewards is to be listed as an executive producer of our show. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Paige Leno, Adam Barbary, Irene Ryan, Sarah Donahue, Elle McManus, Bridger Mobley, Skeeter Hall, Wendy Gabbery, Susan Anderson, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hartberger, Heather Cadieu, Bonnie Mortensen, Mistea Pena, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Thank you all so much for your incredible support.